how you live your life is your business. Just remember, our hearts and our bodies are given to us only once. And before you know it, your heart's worn out. And as for your body, there comes a point when no one looks at it, much less wants to come near it. Right now, there's sorrow, pain. Don't kill it. I'm with it, the joy you felt. film i am tom nolan and i'm mario ponzio and this is episode 58 58 my dad was one year old on the second to last day of this year i think my dad was born 58 too yeah he Wait, is born 58 your dad's younger than my dad he's 60 he's gonna be 61 this year oh your dad's younger than my dad there you go That's crazy is that good or bad no who knows um you know what's bad apparently X-Men Dark Phoenix. Oh, those reviews are awesome. <laughs> they are. They're pretty great. I love how people are trying to go out of their way to kind of make the excuse like, you should see if you really like Game of Thrones and you want to see more Sophie Turner. In which case, everyone said, we're good. <laughs> I imagine it probably has some really good trailers in it, though. Because why else would you go to see that movie? Do you think it has like a Toy Story trailer? No, because I... No, it's a but Disney that, movie now. That's going to be terrible. There's no way that Toy Story 4 movie is going to be any good. Yeah, there's going to be a really good toy movie released that week. Child's Play, I, and then there's which is going to be terrible. Which you have to, you have to admit that those terrible. trailers are terrible. It's going to be a good terrible. It, the trailer doesn't make any sense. It doesn't. It's What's got happening Brian in Tyree it? Brian Henry, and it's got but Brian Tyree, Tyree Henry is only in like a second of the trailer, and he's asking a question. Who is he? Who is he even supposed to be? He's playing Detective Mike. You watched the original Child's Play? Oh, he's Detective he's Mike. Chris, he's Chris Sarandon. Wow, okay, so, yeah. Do not know who Chris Sarandon is. I know who Chris Sarandon is. I know the original Child's Play. Who's Chris? Okay. I don't think you do. This is good radio. Us just staring. <laughs> I don't think you do. <laughs> it's Oliver Hudson's uncle. Okay, that's fair. I know exactly who it is. Oh, man. Um, so in... we've Pivotal tr- Film Studios are hot tonight, huh? It's really hot, yeah. The tower? Maybe we shouldn't have been so high up. Heat rises. Mm. Especially when you're on the 105th floor. You know what's crazy? Floor. doesn't I'm work. I'm not going to open the window. There's no opening. The windows the don't work on the Pivotal if we Film open, Studios. We are so far up. JP is currently listening. If uh, you listened to last week's episode, JP was our special guest. And this week, he's just listening in. We're so high up in the Pivotal Film Studio. If I open up that, that window, we will be sucked out to the atmosphere. Just like Chris Sarandon. What? No, just like the alien <laughs> queen from Aliens. Or... Yeah, just really slowly. The alien uh, baby from Alien Resurrection. Which is sad. Which yeah, is that sad. was sad. That was a sad moment. That was a sad moment. Can you believe those movies had, like, two good directors and then James Cameron and Ridley Scott? Mm. I can. Mic drop. Um, Speaking of sad... <laughs> Yeah, speak, actually, that's pretty good. Speaking of that, sad, is that 
while speaking doing of fad, speaking of fad, fad from Flip This House, I am another Connecticut native. I was having a thought this weekend when I was drinking uh, a beer that a Connecticut local Connecticut beer that at some point on this podcast we were going to have to address this this beer company in the sense that I generally have had a very lackluster relationship with this company. I will, and I will say this. I have, in recent years, have a lackluster relationship with this beer company, and, um, but one of the first beers of the Southern Connecticut paradigm I had experienced <laughs> was their coffee stout flavored uh-huh. with roasted coffee from Willoughby's, our good friends at Willoughby's, yep. from our Avengers Endgame episode where we're drinking Good old French roast. We were them. drinking Willoughby's there frequently. For yeah. a couple of episodes. We really mentioned it during that episode. Yeah, yeah. Um, apparently, we have a we have a we have a publicist now. This is pretty great. Um, it's a multimedia experience. <laughs> yeah, Jesus. YouTube channel coming in 2025. Um, their coffee stout was one of my favorite beers hmm. at 25. So, and that's the thing. So they had a New Haven Nighthawks. Like it was just like an ale. It was like a brownish, like a lager. Yeah, lager. Oh, that's right. It was a lager. They make New Haven Nighthawks light now. I loved that beer. I love it. It's a good beer. It's Um, a good solid beer. A lot of their stuff, though, I have questions about. (laughs) I I, I'm left unsatisfied, and and it goes along with another um, brewery that also brews in the exact same (laughs) exact same city. And we were talking two, about you know, two breweries. That two breweries. breweries. Yeah. And I haven't, so, drank, I haven't drank a lot of the other ones. So this listen. is Thimble Island Brewing Company out of Branford, Connecticut. And Branford, you know, I don't love you at all. You have a lot of Trump signs, and that is a thing that I'm not even going to say problematic. It just is but they have indicative a good record store. of, I don't know what music is. Exile on Main Street. It's got a good record store. Branford, you're not my favorite. You have a good autometrist. My autometrist, he's pretty solid. Good they old, have a good, good old shout out to. They to, have a good Doctor Lynch vegan restaurant. Gzen, shout out. To I'm G-Zen. surprised they're they're allowed to stay in Branford. They have That's a good true. road race in June, the Branford Road Race on Father's Day weekend. But your three breweries have been to me a mixed bag. Remember the Duvig Milk Stout? Was it the Milk Stout? It's cream Stout. Cream Stout that we were no, like cream ale. Cream ale, and I feel like we were drinking. We had it a lot. And it's drinkable. It's a really drinkable. I feel like everyone was really excited about the Duvig Cream Stout, and then after cream a while, ale. people were just cream ale, and everyone just make... kind of like, Meh, whatever. Well, because I feel like you had a lot of conversations with me about Duvig beers. Well, because you have a cream ale, and you're like, this is pretty solid. Then you realize that Genesee Cream Ale exists, and you're like, oh right, this is slightly less good, but I can get thirty of them for fourteen dollars. Okay, but let's talk about this. So we got Thimble Island. We're trying to match beers to episodes. This is a, it's called Georgia Sour India Pale Ale Brewed with Peaches. What does Sour India Pale Ale even mean? We're going to find out, Mario. I mean, recently, uh, for a special episode that we recorded today, we drank, I drank a cream IPA that Tom thought was, uh, I possibly believe. Disgusting. I believe it actually exercised a part of his soul from him. We didn't dink it, you motherfucker. Dink it. You say I don't like it? I kind of like it. JP, JP, get in this dinkage. You're, you're just, you're just, you're, beep, beep, you're beep, listening, beep, beep. but you got, you got dink it. Oh, that is really, really good, actually. Mm. That's a, that's not a, what? All of them in this line are good. The margarita. Yeah, you said the margarita was good. They have a blueberry one. 
and it's so not overwhelmingly mm. really okay so and it's not overwhelmingly sour either like it's right, it you right. can feel the sourness but it's not like kicking my ass but this is a six percent alcohol abv beer this is not how is this a six percent abv beer mm. What's this good? is so smooth it's very smooth and it's very um it's very subtle like we I look get, like fucking assholes right i get now. the peach but it's not we like we just shit talked all over thimble island and they just fucking... no it's the thing i don't think we we didn't shit talk them as much as we said we have a they complicated relationship. Well we have a complicated relationship with them. You know what I mean? Like it's the same thing with we, we talked about a couple weeks or last week with the um the counterweight, the headway. Like a lot of the counterweight beers we like a lot, but headway we just are kind of like on the fence about. A lot of the Thimble Island beers I'm kind of on the fence about, but this one's actually really kind of delicious. Yeah, this is really good. I wish I'd bought another four pack of this. You didn't? Mm mm. So we're all gonna have to fight to the death over this one. This one that's left. I was taking it. <laughs> so I guess it's time we uh, talk about the movie of the week. <laughs> that sounds so excited. Well, some you know, unfortunately, we're in this period I agree of time. With you. I agree with you. Where the movies that are coming out are either very <clears throat> sparsely located, mm-hmm. not coming here quickly enough, um, or at times where the schedules are nearly impossible to make, like High Life. Was that problem for me? And, and shifting. Ever. Like, they'll still have yeah. a schedule, and then all of a sudden they'll just, like, extract a yeah. couple of screenings from it, and it's, like, impossible to catch Especially it. on Tuesdays, which are, like, the perfect movie-going day for mm-hmm. me. I mean, not just because I'm cheap, but because I'm cheap. <laughs> um, but, no, seriously, like, they're, they're the perfect day for me to go to movies, and I'll look at, like, like High Life, for example, on Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday, we'll have, like, a 9 o'clock showing. I'm like, that's perfect. And I'll check Tuesday, and it's, like, 6.30... And then 10.40. Yeah, then that's it. And it's yeah. like, what are you doing? No, I, I, um, I'm going through the same thing with, like, um, like I really want to see... What did I want to see? Um, nonfiction. The um, Julia Binoche, um, the guy that directed Clouds of Sills... Um, oh, Sam Sills, yeah. Whatever his, whatever his name is. I'm, not, it's, I'm drawing a blank right now. But it was playing in at the Criterion Theater for, like, five days. And then it, they just pulled all of its screenings... For Oliver says. Oliver says, yes. Um, but then I think Aladdin came out and Rocket Man. And so then Aladdin and Rocket Man and got or Godzilla and Rocket Man or whatever got like all of the screenings. And Crit- so now Criterion's of Criterion, I think last week had Rocket Man, Godzilla, Detective Pikachu still. And Why Detective Aladdin. Pikachu? I don't know. Who's still going to see Detective Pikachu? <laughs> At an art house theater in downtown New Haven. Yeah. I don't know. It's like if people want to see these movies, they're going to go to North Haven. But this Criterion. is where we end up with movies like this, Mario. Because um, we were, you saw the souvenir. We were going to discuss it. I unfortunately couldn't get to it because it's only playing in Madison, and uh, once again at weird times. And we have to record a little earlier um, this week. So stupid ins- having friends. Instead, yeah, coming from overseas. Yeah. Instead, we saw the Netflix film "I Am Mother." There used to be. Then why did you only make one? Mothers need time to learn. This facility was designed to give humanity a second chance. One that began with you. Daughter. The path will not be easy. The world outside is lifeless. But I made you into the woman that you are, so that we could do this together. 
following an extinction level event, a robot begins the process of creating life anew from embryos in a storehouse, um, raising a young girl to her teenage age, uh, played by Clara Rugard, um, relative newcomer, I believe. I think so. Just a couple of things. Yeah, she's Danish, been in some Disney shows, it looks like. Um, Oh, she's... No, that's the TV show, The Lodge, not the movie coming out, The Lodge. Uh, Mother, the voiced by Rose Byrne, uh, raises her following a very interesting sort of strict moral code. Um, but Daughter, as she's called, uh, seeks out hope in new life and life outside. And eventually, life outside does come to them in the form of Hilary Swank's woman. Because this is one of those sci-fi movies that's really clever and doesn't give anyone character names mm-hmm. like every other sci-fi movie. <laughs> and from there, she finds out that the Extinction Level event, which I'd been told to her as a virus, was not a virus, but instead an AI attack uh, done by droids just like Mother. Um, daughter then has a conflict of interest uh, between her maternal relationship with Mother and her species relationship with the woman and hoping to find others of her kind and uh by the numbers dull pretty okay acted i guess but who fucking cares movie follows um this is the directorial debut of grant Su- uh, supertor um he directed a really good black mirror uh, not really good he directed a pretty mediocre black mirror episode and it's from a screenplay by Michael Lloyd Green, the, two, the 2016 Blacklist movie, uh, which I'm quickly learning nearly all Blacklist screenplays are there for a reason, mm. because they should not be made. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it, it was that it. Yeah. You wanna, uh, I mean, <laughs> you wanna... it's clean looking. It's got that yeah. going for it. I mean, in the sense of it looks very sanitary. But that's clean and really shiny. It's, it does shiny really well. It's funny. We're, I think we're you know we're gonna do high life in, in you know a couple of weeks or something. Um, we're gonna do like a, a special episode about high life. It's funny to juxtapose this movie with high life, which like shows a lot of the same types of shots in some instances, but is um, rooted in like an earthiness and you know as natural as space travel and space life could look. Um, where this does look highly synthetic, which I guess should look highly synthetic. It's um, never been used before when the movie opens. You know what I mean? The whole thing is turning on because the extinction-level event has occurred um, to the point... I guess it's a really quick, systematic extinction of humans. All the, It was oh, going any, on for not that long, and already there's zero... Any AI sort of robot attack movie, for some reason, needs to have, like, instantaneous extinction. Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, basically Terminator and, and, to an extent, I guess, War of the Worlds, uh-huh. like the H.G. Wells, kind of has that same kind of synthetic quality to it of, of an attack. Um, needs to have it be really fast happening. Yeah. You, you know, you can't have it be, like, a long, protracted war, which, you know, most likely probably would well, be. Because you wouldn't I know who fucking carries. It's not even, like, it's just so... This is a, well. This is something we've seen before, yeah. and heard before, and well, done before, a, over and over and over again. This movie seems like it wants to have its cake and eat it too, so it's got no real idea about. So you know, you said uh, um, the robot is bringing daughter up by this like kind of very specific moral code, um, 
But that moral code is really just kind of another plot device, more so than an idea for something very specific well, regarding anything that's happening in this movie. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah, so it's, it's a reason for extinction and for the robot to be doing what it's doing rather than, like, any kind of commentary on, on actual man. It's, in that regard, it's very ham-fisted, like in Godzilla, where, like, Vera Farmiga is just kind of like, here are all the reasons why I'm doing this. And, and that's, the, that's the thing about this movie, is it follows, it's so on track. It's, it's just on a set track course. Where you, I mean, maybe it defies expectations by literally doing everything you would expect a movie like this to do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, every time you're trying to, like, subvert those expectations or, or do something different, um, <laughs> maybe this movie just by completely doing what you'd expect a movie of this kind to do is being like, oh, we're being different. Uh, you know, big spoilers here. The, the, the robot mother turns out to be the AI collective that's been controlling all the robots that are killing everything. It set off the extinction-level event to reset humanity. But it then doesn't have any moralistic issues. All, all it talks about is, is like how the trolley problem, the answer is, you know, letting the other five... Sur- it's like... It, it it's operates by a uh, utilitarian sort of mindset. Um, and that's the only sort of moralism it says besides saying, like, humanity was going to destroy itself anyway and I was going to be all alone. And it doesn't do anything to really demonstrate that. Yeah. Um, it just keeps lying and then raises the daughter to be a good person. But then the daughter kind of disagrees with the robot about the trolley problem situation, the, the organ problem, as they call it. This. Well, it doesn't, mean, um, it doesn't. It doesn't, it doesn't. It's funny, because at the end of the movie, she goes back. So, you know, mother awakens this girl, you know, 38 years past, but we there's a teenager, you know, it's weird, there's a teenager sitting there, and there's mother and, like, all this other stuff. Um, you know, Hilary Swank's woman is outside the doors, and, and the daughter lets her in, and she hides her, and then she can't hide her anymore and there's a fight and there you know she's saying i got shot and oh wow it she, is like 30 i didn't realize yeah. that i was like twelve thousand. i was like when it said like twelve thousand days have passed i was like oh it's like 13 i'm bad at math i was like oh it's about 14 years <laughs> that makes sense um wait a minute oh so the toddler in the beginning isn't the so the that's fi- one of the ones that she so had incinerated the got thinking it. is this got it so they're saying that i mean if you watch the movie if you're just going by what the movie shows you at some point it shows you three empty embryo containers and they're all female it shows you one living daughter who we don't see apparently again. They show us a ch- the remains of a charred jawbone at one point, and then we see the daughter who we're, we've done the whole movie with. The conceit, I suppose, is that Hillary Swank is the first girl that we see that mother has loosed into society. You think so? So that the new daughter would have to make a live decision this per this one person or all of the embryos and at the end of the movie just kind of like a tro- it's like a really big trolley thing where at the end of the movie the girl spoiler alert decides to choose all the embryos the reason why i guess then that mother lets herself get um you know metaphorically shot because you can't she's just a you know, she's just she's a hive mind. She's just shooting a robot at the chest. It just doesn't make any difference. She has. Well, I guess there's no there's no robots else. Other robots. The idea is well, there's all the in other, there. They're all, outside. They're, they're all outside. Yeah. There. Um, they were cutting through the door just a second ago. Um, now this girl is ready officially to be the mother, and 
will repopulate humanity via these embryos and raise them in her own image, morally perfect, thus creating a human race that is better to itself than the previous human race. I think what you didn't just say there <laughs> is kind of like the perfect thing for this movie. It's really clean looking, um, and I suppose professionally done. No, it's professionally done in the sense that it's not. Nothing is done. Nothing is done um, extraordinary. Extraordinarily, everything is done how I would do it. I don't know how to make a movie. I don't know how 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 making movies works. If you gave me like a film crew and like a special effects budget, I'm not sure I would figure it out. But I'm pretty sure my shots of an ocean with a bunch of shipping containers on the beach would look exactly like this. Pretty clean. Uh, okay. I'm all, but I'm 100% sure that the drones flying over me that are supposed to be really big would not look like drones that you could buy on Amazon right now. <laughs> maybe, the, maybe the budget ran out. Um, I, I, I don't think this is that professionally done. It's, it's, it's like... It's competently that's a done. I would say it's like, no, I don't think so. I, I think... Done. But I think that's it. But I think competence demands going beyond cleanliness and, and a, fl- a flat, a flatness. Like san- like you don't want like if you, I know you want a sanitary setting, but when it's doing nothing, oh like yeah, when yeah, that yeah. Film, like it's it does nothing. Those shots of of the burnt world do nothing. They look well. Those just really look silly dull and goofy and it looks like somebody saw you know fury road and the the mist scene in, in mad max fury road and was like i'm gonna recreate that with no talent i mean the robot scene at the end there like when that tank robot is like coming towards the door it looks like robocop it yeah it's like 1987 robocop it looks like robocop or you know like the really stop motion crappy uh first terminator uh yeah, post, yeah, yeah. post judgment day and that's the thing this this feels like it is a director and you know obviously a screen debut whatever but that doesn't no excuse fuck it actually that's not an excuse at all um you know it, it, it doesn't have any sort of creative sense it, it doesn't it doesn't do anything that is unique unto itself mm-hmm. the the Wida workshop design robot looks kind of like robots for um uh, some of the android you see in something like overwatch or even some of the um I would say, to an extent, it kind of reminded me also like District Nine, mm. like some of the the elements of. Is that the movie I'm thinking of? No, not District Nine. The shitty one that followed it up. Um, Elysium. The one right after that, with the other the rope the other. Oh, that's how forgettable that movie was. The the next Neil Bloomkopf movie, um, with, uh, Di Atwood. Um, You're going to have to... It's not Robot and Frank, but Google. It's definitely not that. <laughs> Chappie. The, the oh, design yeah, yeah, looks a lot like, like Chappie. Chappie. Um, yeah, Chappie was a movie. It looks like Chappie if Chappie had been designed by Apple. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that that's that's the issue, is is everything... The, the embryos look like the embryo packages you see in Alien Covenant. Uh, the the screen that she has the psychological testing looks like a mix of um, 
the baseline scene in um, Blade Runner 2049, uh-huh. as well as the uh, introductory scene to the mission in Prometheus. Right. It is taking elements of not even great or some great, some proficient sci-fi movies mm-hmm. and just mixing them into a, a flat right. line that is Black Mirror. And, and the problem is, like, the new Black Mirror season just came out. It's not even that great of a season. That's what everyone's writing, yeah. But it's it's still entertaining. Like, the first episode is, you know, Anthony Mackie fucking because his best friend. two hours in a, long. In a, in a fighting game. They just, they're just fucking in a fighting game. It's him and his best friend. That's all the episode's about. It's mm-hmm. actually... And it ends with just them still fucking. Spoiler alerts to that. <laughs> but even that is more interesting. Like, it's doing more well, interesting so things. I think that's what I said before that, like... This movie <clears throat> wants to have it hits cake and eat it too. Is that it wants to be like a typical sci-fi movie, but it also kind of wants to subvert the sci-fi thing, or it thinks it's subverting the sci-fi thing by just sticking these two characters in like a bunker together and letting like some kind of a drama play out like within that, like between the two of them, and then adding Hillary Swank into it and being like, well, now there's like a oh, really? variable, and how do we do this? I agree. Ten Cloverfield Lane did not come out well, four I'm, years that's ago. That's what I'm saying. Is that Moon it, didn't happen already? Right. Once again, these are just it's just tropes that are done much better or, if, or even I more competently. I would by, be by forgiving other or more. I'm not, I don't even really care. So I'm not even going to say like I'm mad at it. Like that, there's anything to forgive. I would have found it less like boring if it had if it was saying something, but it wasn't saying anything. All the things that it were saying were just. A bunch of we're just more plot devices. And if you're not going to say anything, like be entertaining, you know, like right. that's the thing about Ten Cloverfield Lane. Ten Cloverfield Lane's almost the exact same premise for a movie. Well, one of the reviews, but are... it, it just deals with like this. Re- like Dan Trachtenberg knew he was making a really corny kind of like decently tense. I actually like Ten Cloverfield Lane a lot. The last ten minutes are kind of meh. Um, decently tense and enthralling kind of character drama with three pretty solid actors. You know, and to um, the... and this is just that boring and to that end it was definitely moon that i was thinking about before duncan jones knew ex- duncan jo- D- jones knew the limitations of the movie that he was going to make you know what i mean so he didn't decide he was going to do he's going to spend all of his very limited budget making like the shiniest apparently humongous bunker ever with automatic doors and like all this extra stuff um and then have like no concept of where he was with only a very limited concept of where he was going um, I think this movie thought that it could sell its fairly standard issue premise with how everything looks. And for a little bit, you're kind of, I was kind of like, all right, like for the first half hour, I was like, I don't know where this is, thinks it's going. But if it stays here and it stays small and it ratchets up the tension that way, I will be okay with it. And then the second they got outside, I was like, yeah, I'm all done. No, you can't have. Yeah, you that's can't the thing. Do this too. Like, look at Ten Cloverfield Lane. People are done with Ten Cloverfield Lane when she gets outside, and that's the last ten minutes of that film. So you're able to forgive that. This movie leaves the bunker at like an hour, and you still got like another fifty minutes. Yeah. Because this movie's almost two hours long. Well, and for I, some unforeseen. I would reason. pause it. I paused it because I had to go to the bathroom, and I was like amazed that I had only watched like forty minutes of this movie. I was like, there's no way I have another hour and 26 minutes. And that's to the watch problem, here. too. The problem is there is a lot of movie for not a lot of things being done. Right. It's not overly compelling. I read one review that was like talking about the violence, and I was like, there's no violence. What violence? The only thing I thought was like, why is this TV 14? I was confused by like 
how that got rated TV-14. I don't know. I was confused by how... Is, is Netflix self-rating? They have to be. Yeah, I'm sure Because Hillary are. Swank definitely says, go fuck yourself. So she uses fuck in a But it's Hillary Swank saying it, so... Can... And the violence isn't intense or anything. It's just... No, whatever. it's just... But, like, it's they made PG-13 it... PG-13 If I'm reading a review and I'm seeing the word violence, I expect, like... There to be significant violence. If you're singling out the music, if you're singling out the violence, I want to see some violence. I don't want to just see the robot sticking her finger into a wound to get information that the robot doesn't need because apparently it knows it orchestrated Hillary Swank's entire existence. So why is it looking for the people in the mines? Exactly. <laughs> I, I don't know. There's there's just there's not a lot to say about this. It's not good. It's not worth seeing. It's not worth your time to watch. No, there's other stuff. There's I mean, just watch reruns of Chef's Table or something. Or if you're really on Netflix, and wait stuck. a week if you want to see a crazy AI. You can go see the remake of Child's Play. Oh yeah, that's kind of they are, they are kicking that under the rug, very, very hard. I'm really hoping it's either. Oh, I'm hoping it's gonna be bad, like good well, bad. The best part about this Child's Play thing is that you've been waiting for this movie for a long time. I've seen, I think one. I don't have cable, so I don't see like trailers on TV anymore. I've also seen no ads. I've also seen no like information about like how it is or like what's supposed to be happening. I've seen no interviews with Brian Tyree Henry or Aubrey Plaza or anybody involved in Child's Play. It's just a thing that everybody knows is coming out. They've made four posters where Chucky has been killing various uh, Toy Story four characters. Whoa, because you know, it's 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 uh, it's it's grungy. It's it's a uh, subversive. Trans- transgressive. Mm. Is it transgressively ter- terrible in how Chucky's computer-generated face looks? Because that Hopefully. looks pretty bad. At least it's R-rated. Oh, yeah. Hopefully some good gore. Mm. And not CGI gore. I'm sure it'll be very CGI Fucking gore. bright burn. It'll have big bubbly blood shooting out of people. The blood will just be like that viscous kind of like look like sand quality. What's oh, yeah. Like just just fucking squib people. Put squibs on people. They don't use squibs anymore. I will give the, I'll give this movie that. The blood was was actual real like it wasn't CGI blood. I guess for the one second. I'll give, there. I'll give it yeah, I'll give it that. When I when you know, when Hillary Swanks gets kinda like jammed in the chest mm-hmm. in the stomach, that, that blood looked looked good. Yeah, I mean, here's, so here's a question Which for you. Which is bad. <laughs> yeah. The bad that I'm getting excited that blood sometimes looks good in um, movies. So did you see the ever see the making of um, History of Violence? Yeah, a long time ago. So with, with like the Ed Harris, like his chest, like during the dream sequence when his chest is open up like in the floor and how like they actually put Ed Harris in the floor and had like an open chest and like all this other stuff. Oh, yeah. If they the made that movie now, would they even bother to do that? Or would they just have a guy laying there and then just CGI like open chest wound? With like they had like sm- real smoke coming out of it and stuff. Fetty Alvarez, they just CGI that. Fetty Alvarez would. He would really do it. Who's yeah. it? Who is Fetty Alvarez? Well, he did the Evil Dead remake. Oh, okay, um, yeah, and yeah. that has no CGI gore. Like all that gore was practical effects that end so, up yeah. costing more because they had to do that. There you go. We'll see. We'll see how what Child's Play does. Yeah. Probably not a lot. <laughs> all right, we'll be right back with our number fifty-eight. There are those movies that touch you in a way that you can't speak to when when they in the moment. Um, 
whether that be because the story, the themes, the the overall accrement, as I said, a, a French word that might not even be the proper French word. I might have made up a French word. It's fine. You can make up French words. Accrement. If that is not a French word, French people get on it and make it a word. Um, that just touch you in a way that you don't get. For my movie this week, I didn't get it because I was young. But I watched it over and over and over again. As a child at the age of seven, eight is want to do. My movie this week is the 1994 Walt Disney animated feature, The Lion King. Walt Disney Pictures presents its all-new 30-second full-length animated motion picture, The Lion King. He was born to rule. This will all be mine? Everything the light touches. Wow. But a shadow lies over the kingdom. I will be king. Run away and never return. No! If you ever come back, we'll kill you! The Lion King, a loose retelling of Walt, Walt Shakespeare. I was going to say Walt Shakespeare. Walt Walt, she- Walter Shakespeare. <laughs> William Shakespeare's Hamlet. Is that what it's supposed to be? It's it's a loose, loose, loose retelling of Hamlet. What? Yeah. I didn't know that. Did you know that? Okay. It is a young prince ostracized from the community. Is it Denmark? Does this take place in Denmark? Who returns to find out that his (laughs) uncle... Has taken over after the murder of his father, who returns to him as a spirit, and the young prince's retaking of his rightful throne. Um, in Hamlet, of course, things don't go that way. Yeah, but in The Lion King, a child's film. It is this does. like a is that like an official thing or is that like a hot take? No, it's it's one hundred percent actually a, a, huh. a loose retelling of Hamlet. Interesting. No hot take at all. It's, it's a very accepted opinion of. Of Lion King. Huh. Like, you do not look at Lion King and not go, like, that's Hamlet. I've looked, only looked at Lion King and said, this is not very interesting. <laughs> In 1994, young Mario J. Esquire Dylan <laughs> Thomas Lorenzo <laughs> Thomas Ponzio. You sound awesome. I was, a real, I was a real renegade. Ladies, Mario has six middle names. <laughs> Two of them. Sunburns easily. You know, this is all you need. Soon by President Lorenzo Rolamas <laughs> or Renegade. Um, I was compelled to watch this movie over and over again. And I think a lot of kids are, are, are compelled to rewatch Disney films or animated films or some sort of films mm-hmm. over and over again. But even watching this movie back then, and watching this movie now, I realized overall I'm not compelled by the story. I was never compelled by the story as a kid either. And I knew I wasn't compelled by the story. But I knew that I was drawn to it. Mm -hmm. I knew that I was entranced by something. you have a sense of why? Uh, No. No, not as a kid. I just knew, I just wanted to watch it again. 
I wanted to watch it again and again and again. And I haven't watched this film in nearly 20 years. Mm-hmm. But I, it was on my list because I knew this movie made an impact in the sense of looking at a film and needing to constantly rewatch the film, needing to constantly digest something, needing to constantly not digest. Digest suggests a necessary element of introspection. Well, yeah, it sounds like it was. A, it inspired I, you to like really consider the deep ideas of I needed a, to maintain a pulse. I needed a pacemaker at eight to And this was this? Old. And this was this movie. I have another film higher up on my list from Disney that I can 100% say I know why it's on my list and that I will argue to the end of days despite its serious flaws in, in the scope of the modern world. But I will argue that it encapsulates my perspective and my ideologies of film. Uh-huh. And, and like how I interpret film and, and the way the story is told and the way the characters not necessarily act with one another, but the way that the narrative unfolds and the, the, the depth of the visuals. You know, I, I will argue with my dying breath that this movie touches me in the way that I think it's a significant piece of cinema. Mm-hmm. Lion King is not that. I rewatched this this week, thinking that maybe it was, maybe it was the visuals. You know that 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 landscape that unfolds, the blighted kind of with the weird, uh, yeah, you know, like that 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 big. Oh, that part, not that the big, scar landscape. No, no, the, that big scope and the yellows and the reds at the beginning. I'm thinking like maybe I was overwhelmed by the visuals. I wasn't. Mm. I knew I wasn't, and I I remembered. I'm. Still in touch with the eight-year-old Lara. I wasn't touched by that. Because you knew Favreau was coming. He was gonna blow your mind. Yeah, I knew. I knew he was gonna get some Donald Glover and Beyonce on me. <laughs> <laughs> he was gonna get some. He's gonna get some Billy on the streets to convince me that Nathan Lane's not doing his oh, job. Oh man, if Billy, if it just was Billy on the street, that'd be amazing. Um, and and so I kept watching it. And as I was watching it, I realized that a lot of what the Lion King does visually and narratively is then done better in later Disney films of the same decade. Mm-hmm. The landscapes of fire and burning and the overwhelming blight of the world is done better in The Hunchback of Notre Dame. That, I don't, that, think, I don't that, think I've ever even seen that movie. It's, it's, it's solidly like anti-theocracy. Uh, Sort of, sort of narrative, um, but but like the fires and the lava of it, and, and that overwhelms the scar world, or even scars demise framed against the shadows, is then done much more subtly and much more fantastically, surprisingly, in Tarzan, where the main villain of that I don't remember the character's name. Phil Collins. <laughs> I hope so. Um, accidentally hangs himself after what? trying to kill. Is it Judas? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Judas accidentally hung himself. Tarzan's just a Jesus narrative. But but no, but like like the fact that the, his undoing is done against a, a background of shadow mm-hmm. and light is done so much better than that. Hmm. And then I realized it's the fucking music. 
Elton John. That's it. He gets you. Gets you Tim Rice, time. Elton John, and the Hans Zimmer score is the only thing that mattered in this movie. It's As a kid, hyenas. not even. <laughs> nothing in this narrative matters to me. It's not the best movie. It's fine. It is, to me, watching it now, it follows that like Hamlet narrative pretty well until like you know Simba goes away and it follows Simba for a while and like you don't need to follow Simba but you need some flatwit jokes and it turns into Rudolph the Red Nose Reindeer yeah exactly <laughs> um, but it follows a very coarse blase narrative but that fucking music entranced me as a kid mm-hmm. and even now I find myself watching that movie and you know Kuna Matata Circle of Life everything just catches me and it's not that good rewatching it it's not it's not mind blowing it is iconic yeah but i give this film credit for the sense that even more so than a movie that'll show up later on my list that was um that has some pretty iconic songs or even something you know talking about the modern well, so film by people on the list, like aladdin like nobody really knows much of the Aladdin music besides uh, a Brave Brave New World, Brave New World, um, a whole new world, a whole new world, exactly. Yeah, because um, Peebo Bryson sang it. <laughs> Mario, what? Peebo Bryson. Bryson. <sighs> this guy doesn't know about Peebo Bryson. <laughs> he used to sing those songs. Oh, fair enough. A whole new world. Can you feel the love tonight? But for me, this is the first movie. Where music drew me in. Mm-hmm. The score. Yeah. The songs. The. They were the powdered sugar on top of the poorly constructed donut. Yeah. And I. I it's funny because the things I remember about this movie are all related to the songs. You know what I mean? I don't remember a lot else about. I mean, I remember the transition between the faux Jonathan Taylor Thomas voice and whoever played like Matthew a, Broderick, adult Simba's Matthew Broderick, faux Matthew oh. Broderick singing voice. Oh, that part, yeah. Um, you know what I mean when they're like singing and, and it just changes and stuff like that. Um, but I agree with you. Like my relationship to this movie was one hundred percent relegated to like listening to the soundtrack in the car. Uh, like, Joseph I, Williams provided adult Simba's voice, and also uh, Jonathan Jason Weather. Weaver was the, uh, not John the Taylor Thomas, did the child Simba. Singing. Voice. Yeah. Nice. Um, you don't think anybody from Home Improvement could do that sort of sultry voice? I bet Zachary Tybrine could totally do that kind of sultry <laughs> voice. Um, or Taryn Noah Smith. You could, you could absolutely. Your knowledge of that fucking show is <laughs> well overwhelms mine. Um,. Yeah, I mean, I remember listening to those songs in the car, like on cassette tape, and I even remember what the cassette tape looked like. It was like a, uh, one of the like the most professionally put together cassette tapes I've like ever received. You know what I mean? And I, re- I even remember as a kid, like how iconic this score was. Like, yeah, and it's really it's pretty it's pretty good. Like late era Elton John. It's like probably Elton John's best record until Songs from the West Coast was like the song, the songs from the Lion King. What um, song from the West Coast? Songs from the West Coast is uh, is from in the two thousands. Is um, he used Robert Downey Jr. in the video for "I Want Love," 
But it's his, like, most open and honest record that he had made in, like, a long time. It was, you know, actual Elton John and not kind of, like, faux whatever. You know, it's... Uh, as a good, and this is, as and a good this comparison, is. it's, like, David Bowie, like, heathen kind of reality-era David Bowie as opposed to, like, Earthling-era David Bowie, where David Bowie was still compelled to, like, establish a persona... And by, you know, the 90s, the early 2000s, he was just kind of like, yeah, I don't need... And, by the early 2000s, he was like, I don't need to do that anymore. And like, just be a guy. And, like, Hans Zimmer had been nominated for a BAFTA for Thelma and Louise, had been nominated for an Oscar for Rain Man, but that's been it for him. He wins the Oscar for this score. And, like, this, I think, sets up the tableau of Hans Zimmer for the next fucking... Hans Zimmer's probably going to live another 50 to 60 years somehow, so... Yeah, there's a direct link between this and, and The Dark Knight. Is that sarcasm? <laughs> I think there I think there is. I think there's there's a, a sense of the overwhelming like the fact that the score so mm-hmm. not overwhelms, but so I mean it's pretty provides a backbone to so the narrative. That's interesting. I and I was thinking about this today. I so I like I said, my kids could not watch past Mustafa's death. Or Mufasa's Dad, stuff. Dad, we have to get up. Um, it was just, it, it was an emotion that they, I mean, they've watched characters. They're going to be real confused when, like, William, William James Earl Jones provides the voice in the remake. Well, they, but they're fine with, like, so, you know, they've watched Dumbledore die. You know what I mean? They've watched all these characters die in the Harry Potter movies. They really don't care about that. But for some reason, that movie, in The Lion King, they were just kind of like, well, I don't want to do this anymore. There's like, a certain finality is, to death that isn't But I wonder... But I wonder if, and this is, I think, my problem with, with the movie ultimately, is that in something like Bambi, where everyone talks about like Bambi's mother dying, blah, 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 it's not coupled with the same kind of gravitas, you know what I mean? Like, mm. there's a fire, and then there's a gunshot, and then it's just kind of like, dun, 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 dun. But in Mufasa is murdered by Scar. Like, Scar murders Mufasa. Long live the king. <laughs> Be prepared. The second um, best Jeremy Irons villain performance. As what's the first best? Klaus von Bülow. Um, the Simon Gruber. I don't know. Klaus von Bülow is pretty good. From Reversal of Fortune. Oh, all right. No, you're right. You haven't seen Reversal of Fortune. I hate, I hate myself. Right. No, you're right. Third best. Simon Gruber is um, a solid number two. I think, and I never noticed it before, but and I was thinking about it today. Is that I that the score, the score, and the music, and like the heaviness that is just kind of laid upon it, is tough. Yes, it's, it's, it's pretty tough. It's even tough compared to things like, you know, I just watched me and my little guy just watched the first three, like the original three Star Wars movies, and he was okay with like Phantom Menace, Attack of the Clones, and <laughs> Revenge of the Sith, New Hope Empire, and. He's pretty okay with the deaths of all the major characters. Like, so, Obi-Wan, Yoda, you know, Anakin Skywalker, you know, Darth Vader, Anakin Skywalker, whatever. He doesn't really... The fat guy who dies in New Hope. All the, all the, the X-Wing fighters, they just go. And he has no questions about the X-Wing fighters. Porkins. Porkins, yeah. (laughs) But, um... The Lion King, Mufasa's death. JP giving us our Star Wars knowledge. (laughs) Because if there's one thing me and you lack, it is Star Wars knowledge. Well, I had all my friends used to know all the names of all of the other, like, pilots in the movie. 
and I was the only person who was like, wait, who? Wait, what? And it, it turned out to be the same way with football later in my life, where everyone knew the names of all the players on the Giants teams for, like, the last 30 years. And I was like, oh, yeah. Odell Beckham Jr. He Phil, used to play for that team, Phil right? Sims was the quarterback for, like, 30 years, right? Had some roles on that team at a point in time, right? So, yeah, I think it adds, like, a gra- – the, the score really adds a gravity to it that I don't think – um, a lot of the other Disney movies have. And I think that's true of a lot of those 90s era Disney's movies. So, you know, even something as stupid, I mean, they're all stupid, but like something as stupid as The Little Mermaid, like, you know, uh, those songs, like some of those songs are pretty poignant. Or even like, you know, uh, your movie that you were talking about later, like that has a lot of stupid songs. Little Mermaid's also 1989. But it's 90s. Um, <laughs> it's all the same thing. Um, it's pretty dark. I mean, it gets pretty, it gets pretty fucking dark in those movies. And I think the interesting thing about Lion King is that it pushes the darkness one step further. So in those other early, like, you know, Disney Renaissance movies, they're not killing parents. When you have no, no, even that, the think... mother is already is always already dead. But um, in Lion King, they're like, hey, we're gonna plot the murder of the main character's dad, and then you're gonna see it, and then you're gonna have, you know. Simba react to it. So even something like my I'm kids, sorry, but no, no, my I, kids I was, never cared about like um, uh, Land for Time because L- Littlefoot's mother doesn't die because of a murder plot. She dies doing something natural, which is fighting a T Rex. You know what I mean? Um, so the score, if you, if you want to just talk about score, the score for that is different than the score for Mufasa's death in the sense that it portends something more sinister where in these other movies that isn't there you know what i mean the sinisterness isn't really a, like the calculated sinisterness isn't really a part of the movie it's the first disney movie where it's calculatedly i don't know if that's a word calculatedly um sinister yeah. or devious you know what i mean and that's and that's that's really dark what you're, what you're suggesting is alan menken didn't have the the breadth of knowledge to really add a level to it hans zimmer is is down. He goes down. Yeah. He goes down deep. He's talked to some deep characters. And that's my problem. It's like, 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 we should really just talk about Alan Menken. Alan Menken is the guy for Disney during the early 90s. He does Little Mermaid, Being the Beast, Aladdin, Pocahontas. Um, Pocahontas. He doesn't, uh, I think, Hunchback of Notre Dame. Does he do Lilo and Stitch? Hercules. I don't know if he does that. Oh, man. Tate Donovan. Um, he does go on and do Enchanted, which was great. Um, but like, there is a dimensionality to a Zimmer score, even in like the Lion King, that isn't present in an Alan Menken film. Like, I agree. With, I think I agree you with you. hear, yeah. you you see those Disney movies coming out in the time, coming out in the nine, late eighties, early nineties, and they have a level of softness to them. They they have a level of of. I don't want to say flat because they're not flat, but they have a level. They're flat. Well, they're they're innocuous. They're innocuous. Yeah, Where exactly. The Lion King, that's the, that's the Lion King is probably the least innocuous of those of those movies. Yes, yeah. it's and that adds an element of uh, not danger. That adds an element uh, of of gravity, as you said. To mm-hmm. it. it adds a certain amount of of culpability to the actions you're seeing on screen. And I can see how, as a kid, that would be. So, and like we talked about 
just a second ago, like uh, when I was in 1993, I saw Jurassic Park in theaters. Did you see Jurassic Park in theaters? In oh, absolutely. So that's the thing. So I actually saw. I, we talked about this uh, in a special episode, which will air at some point. I saw Jurassic Park week one. Was more excited for Last Action Hero. Saw Last Action oh, yeah, Hero yeah, yeah. the next week and was like, "Oh no, John McTiernan." Oh, so for me, you tried, bud. Nothing really, and we're going to talk about this later, a couple of times. Is that movies? You really had to do something significant in movies for me at post Jurassic Park. You know what I mean? Like I understand. I was too young to having you read something. Having read Jurassic Park, the no, like Michael Crichton's novel, and then seen the movie. Once you've encountered a bunch of characters being eviscerated, and you know, their guts pouring out of out of them and dinosaurs eating them. Like, a little, a, a little lion sadness doesn't hit you the same way. You know what I mean? But. Mufasa gets really fucking scratched up, though. He does get scratched pretty bad by those wildebees that don't have nails. He gets scratched. Like, <laughs> like by something that does have nails. Um. But the, so- the the songs stick in my head. You know what I mean? I could probably, yeah. if I had enough time to, if I had like five minutes to like meditate here on the air, I could probably sing you the words to all of those songs. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we'll now take a short five minute five break. Five minutes of silence. Well, Tom meditates on this. I'm trying to think of the words that can't you feel the love tonight. I hope we're, keep- we're going to keep all this in. No, I don't. I can't. I can't Damn it! Words. I'm sorry. You haven't given us five minutes, but that's the thing. I, like it yeah. had such an impact, and I was eight years old. I can show this. No, it's okay. I was eight years old. When I still this, have a lot of this. Okay. I was eight years old when this came out, mm-hmm. and the fact that I kept coming back to this because of the music like, you want to sing meant it? something. There's a calm surrender to the rush of death. He's cheating. He's reading the lyrics. When the heat of a rolling he's, he's, wave he's can definitely be reading turned the lyrics off away. He's, he's reading the lyrics and off the phone. And enchanted moment. He's not remembering it. There was not any moment. And it sees me through. Where he meditated to remember the lines. Your roommate has probably got a lot of questions about what's going on up here. She's past that moment. She realizes she made a mistake moving in. <laughs> but seriously, this was the movie. But seriously, is it's gonna be the new? This is the the, the story of the story of. But seriously, the story of. But seriously, um, this is the film where I realized that. Music plays a role mm-hmm. in my experience of right. film. Before then, it was just like, oh, I'll catch you too, and I heard. Before our, you know, like, oh, a little hook. Mm-hmm. This was the thing where I realized, like, oh, I'm drawn to a movie because of music. And it's, I think we talked about that a little bit when we did the um, Eyes Wide Shut episode, where I was just kind of like a movie person, and then couple, like Eyes Wide, Eyes Wide Shut coming off of hearing the score for like American Beauty, where the score for American Beauty is very significant to people, which we're going we're gonna to talk about. But Eyes Wide Shut was so, like, um, hypnotic and so suggestive 
And so... Score you know, by eyes wide shut, stunned by him. Well, it's not even the score. It's just like the music. The Gregory Ligeti, like oh, the bam, okay, bam, yeah. bam, 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 bam. Like just the single, the, the single finger, single note kind of music was so compelling that I was like, holy shit. Like this is, I mean, this is where my revelation about music came from there. And we're going to talk about it in a couple of weeks with me where like, and I think this is really, this is where we enter. Oh, Thomas Newman did not do the music for eyes wide shut. No, 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 no. Yeah. Um, an interesting thing for me or I think for these lists is that we're going to start coming up on these movies where this is the movie that said this is significant. It's the first time you noticed how this thing worked um, or this specific aspect of filmmaking. You know what I mean? And so for The Lion King, it was like this is how – this is the first time I come upon or you came upon where this is how music works. You know what I mean? This is how music can sell a story that's in – Sorry, I just saw how many times Thomas Newman's been nominated for an Oscar and has never won. Is that it like poor a poor motherfucker? Like uh, keep talking, and I'll tell you in a second. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't really have a lot more to say about it other than I think we're gonna start coming up when I re- kind of reviewed... fourteen times. <sighs> That's crazy. Ouch! Didn't he? He's never won. Never won. I mean, he's, he's deserved to win for several of those movies for sure. Yeah. Um. But yeah, so that's 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 all I wanted to say. We're gonna start we're gonna start coming upon these movies where it's like this specific thing about this movie showed me how this works in relation to every yeah, other think, movie I would see from think, then on. I think for a while there's gonna be a especially on this list there's gonna be a, a bunch of movies, uh, not all movies, but uh, several movies that pop up on the list that like hit a note. Mm. No pun intended. Um, where they just hit a certain point. And I think we got there you know a couple weeks back with Airplane. Where like it hit, like oh the the idea of comedy or went on with me or what like I expected in comedy, um, and I, I guess like our lists are kind of explicated in the fact that like you were at that point earlier on and now you're into like the soul and like I am now just finally hit I like I hit like like intellectual films are like through the seventies or whatnot and now I'm finally hitting the things that kind of like tackled the parts of film that mm. made me see film. Mm. We won't get into the soul until, like, the 30s. Mm. Yeah. I'm not in my soul yet. You're into the heart. I'm in my heart chakra. Well, yeah, but... But it's creeping into it. I think what people we're, are realizing... We're creeping into it. What we're realizing with this list is that, like, you're you're the really heartfelt, compassionate person, and I'm the cold, desperate, <laughs> awful human being. I've always framed it like that. Ladies. Ladies. <laughs> We'll be right back with Tom's number 58. Welcome back. My number uh, 58 is my last 2017 movie. It's the last one, really? Yeah, that's it. Um, It is a movie that I'm pretty sure if if we do this again, say we retook up this idea in 10 years, and we got together and, like, did a... uh, I'll be dead. Yeah. We'll Ladies, all, all be um, I think this movie will probably might be higher up on my list, uh, especially having upon having rewatched it this week for um, this list or, or for this episode. Um, it is uh, the Luca Guadagnino's uh, "Call Me by Your Name." Muscles are firm. Not a straight body in these statues. They're all curved. Sometimes impossibly curved, and so nonchalant, hence their ageless ambiguity, as if they're daring you to desire them. 
picture um best actor uh timothy chalamet best original song uh sufian stevens who is an artist that i hate but um i like his work here and it won uh for best adapted screenplay james ivory um i don't know whether or not it deserved it i don't it gets really care. a supporting actor nomination too right for mm-hmm. for army i didn't get it no, no for nomination. um michael stolberg it did not get a michael really? stolberg nomination no um, I think he got it for other stuff. I think he got an Independent Spirit he, Award nomination, but I don't think he got... Uh, he didn't get a support, an uh, Academy Award nomination. Um, that was Michael Stubarg's year, also. So we get, Yeah, because he had Shape of Water. Um, You're right, he does not. I keep forgetting that he does not. I think everyone assumed he would because of the speech. He had a supporting actor's speech in it at the end of the movie. Yeah. Um, everyone always gets nominated for a supporting Oscar based off of a speech. Um, he gets a Golden Globe, I'm, I think, for that. Maybe I don't know. Um, he no, Army Hammer gets a Golden Globe for that. Okay, whatever. That deserved. Mm. Continue. I think so. Um, basically, uh, Call Me by Your Name tells a story. <laughs> you did uh, it. It's ad- I mean, it's adapted from a novel. I forget the author's name. Do you have the author's name there? The author. No, of the I novel. Just watched it. Um, <clears throat> Sorry, got crap in my throat. Yep, yep. Andre um, Ackerman. Ack- yeah, whatever. Um, have you read the novel? No, I have not, not read bad. the novel. No. It's really physical compared to the. We'll talk about it. See, this, and I've right? heard the I've heard the opposite about the novel. That the novel is like very not sec- like not physical, where the movie is much more physical. Um, not by the own author's admission. Hmm? Not by the own author's admission. But the author is probably like a, not a good person to ask about this stuff because he's probably just telling you what he wants you to think about, like having read it. Um, but again, I haven't read it, so I don't know. Um, uh, Elio and his parents uh, are in some place in northern Italy um, over the summer. Um, Elio's father is a uh, like an archaeologist, a historian. Um, he is... Uh, dredging a lake in Italy uh, for like Hellenistic statues, um, and every summer they have a graduate student come in and assist him in his work. This year they Good have six weeks. Oliver, um, played by Army Hammer, come in, and uh, Oliver and Elio uh, begin and end a relationship in the last couple weeks of those six weeks after teasing it. And you know, kind of dancing around their attraction to each other for um, the beginning couple of couple of weeks. Um, I mean, that's the basic that's the basic premise of the story. I mean, there's not a lot of plot here. It's just moving from you, what? what you're saying. There's not a lot of plot here. There's not really a lot of plot here. What's the plot? Okay. But what would the plot be? The plot's memories, but 
We'll, 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 What's the plot? We will talk in a moment. You continue. Well, I'm curious to know what the what you think the plot of this movie is. I'm I, I no, think I'm should... I'm because it's my movie, so I get to dictate where we go. Okay. Um, I, I think the like the overwhelming sense of of remembrance and 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 memory playing a significant role in the shaping of ah an so idea. and that's the thing. So, did you read the book? Yeah. Okay. The book. Uh, there is no me- where is the memory in this movie. It's clearly oh, no, no. I don't. It's I don't, not coming from a a, a place. Of, the The movie in uh, the movie itself is not coming from a place of memory. The movie itself is coming from a place of, of, of. True, real time, like interaction. Really, like he's not remembering any of this stuff. No, this is this is a movie soaked in memory. One hundred percent, it isn't. I would. Dis- what? Where is? Violently it, disagree. Where is it in the movie? There is a a. Okay, so the the scene where before the relationship starts, where he's waiting for Oliver, where he's what? He's waiting for Oliver, sitting on the steps, um, and you get Feudal Devices Doveman remix playing by Sue John Stevens, and you get like that that clouding image of of the film kind of like uh-huh. raining in and out. Um, you get a lot of those blues and greens, and all throughout this movie, you get a solid sense of blues and greens. Okay, but where's... always framing everything? Wait, wait, wait. Let me finish. If, if you're asking a question, you gotta let me finish here. Everything's framed by blues and greens. Everything is, is perfectly framed here. Mm-hmm. Perfectly framed by this really lively color palette. Uh-huh. And even in the scenes where before, like where um, Oliver is about ready to leave, or where there's the introspection of, you know, at the pool scene where Oliver's swimming back and forth, and, you know, they're sitting there, you get yellows, you get solid okay. palettes of color. And this is a deliberate choice by, by, um, by Luca Guadamute. I'm bad with names. We've talked about this on the podcast, guys. The cinematographer on this is, uh, no, I'm going to let you do this. Say um boo. We're gonna mark mook. out like the next five minutes, will you? Mook 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 deep room. Mm-hmm. But Uncle Boomini, who can recall his past lives, and Arabian Nights really deal in reminiscences. Like they deal with in the thoughts of but the, the how... past sense. But the color framing in this is so okay. particular and so, so clean. Compared to I Am Love, okay, but that's the has, first and film. I'm gonna stop you. I, no, I'm going to 100 percent stop you because that has literally no bearing on this movie. I think it does. It, if you to say that, that means that you're saying that this movie is a direct response to something that was happening in another one of his movies. No, or that I don't the think so. I think it's making choices based on like the themes of other. movies No, that I think he was I think Luca is picking a cinematographer knowing. To make a sense of a film and make an idea of a film, knowing that he's going to create but efferalness. Here, but here's this the, has an efferal dreamlike quality to it throughout the entire film. It is very deliberate see, but that's and the thing. very oh, slow. Okay, so that's, I also like how I'm overtaking your movie. No, no, but that's the thing because I think you just kind of misunderstand it in the way that I think you just kind of uh, you just alluded to in like you're talking about the Lion King or what were you talking about? Was it 1999 movies or whatever we we're talking about? I you're dealing with it from a purely aesthetic standpoint. Not necessarily. Yeah, you are, and I'm dealing it from like an an emotional standpoint. In a in a movie that would be dealing with memory would be dealing with it. So remember we talked about if Beale Street could talk, which is a movie that's 100. percent It's framed in memory. You have absolutely. You have 
Um, we talked about how Barry Jenkins make, makes the deliberate sure, sure. action of, of creating sound design but to let's kind not of even, carry... No, but it's not, that's the thing, but it's not the sound design that creates the framework of memory. It's the interspersal of um, the stock footage. It's the narration. It's the um, sense that you're moving. You're not moving from one place to another, but rather you're moving in, in, in the space of a bubble. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Where like... Um, she is narrating this movie. She's narrating a specific uh, piece of time. And it begins here and it ends here. And in between, you have all the stock footage. You have her thoughts on things. You have her interpretation on things. In Call Me By Your Name, you don't get any of those... You don't get any of those framing devices. You do have the impressionistic elements that I think you're talking about which is like the presence of the actual film stock in the Sufjan Stevens music video that just kind of plops down in the middle of this movie. Um, In the presence, in the way that color works here, in the way that certain songs in the score, in the soundtrack, because there's no score... Um, it's all chosen. It's all music that uh, Luca Guadagnino's chosen. Um, like the Ryuichi Sakamoto song, May in the Backyard, that just kind of crops up here and there throughout the movie to kind of create a, uh, to create a sense of, uh, of movement. There's a lot of movement in this movie. Um, you don't get the sense that if you were going to say it was a work of memory, you would say it was a work of almost instant memory, where in the sense that the scene, you know, the the final scene of the credit scene where uh, where Elio's just like staring at the fire is kind of reliving that whole summer over again. You know, it's winter now. Um, you know, he's he's hearing that Oliver's getting married, and he's kind of you know rehashing uh, the details of their of their thing. But there there is no physical framing element that says this is a work of memory. It is a it, to me, it is a work of to me, it, it's all occurring in the present tense. I don't, I don't know how much of this has anything to do with like how I would say that it is like a pivotal film. Oh, yeah, well, here let's talk about how well, it's a pivotal film. Then we'll have this, I mean, this so it's a pivotal film because it is. Like I said, I've already talked about 2017 was kind of a surprising year for movies in the sense that the movies that I really responded to from 2017, which have kind of ended up on my list, are movies that are unlike a lot of other movies. So Mother is... I don't see where the precursor is to Mother other than like some other stuff that Darren Aronofsky's ever done. I don't see what the precursor to The Florida Project is other than like what Sean Baker's like aesthetic sensibility is. is. It points to a different kind of cinema. You know what I mean? Where he's going to take real life, 2017, a 2017 life, and he's going to show it to you in 2017. He's going to use the tools of 2017, and he's just going to just plop it in your face and say, this is current life. It's the most modern. We've entered an era where we can we can do this now. We don't have to, even though Call Me By Your Name was shot on, on 35 millimeter film stock, um, I'm sure it was processed digitally. I'm sure it was ed- edited di- digitally. Um, all this other it's stuff. It's shot in like on a single lens. Too, single lens, yeah. Impressive. Um, Florida Project points to like a new kind of filmmaking. You know what I mean? It's an expert iPhone 
technique. Time, t- like he did with Tangerine, but better. Call Me By Your Name. Baker does with Tangerine. Uh, Baker does with Tangerine, yeah. Call Me By Your Name doesn't specifically point to a new kind of modern filmmaking as much as it points to something which I hadn't seen a lot in film, which is a true, a, a true freedom. This, to me, and I'm not talking about from a film like a, a, a cinephile perspective. I'm not referencing this because I think they're directly related to one another. Obviously, there's, you know, Luca Guadagnino is, uh, is Italian. There's, there's very specific... He's quoting very specific things, but to me, this references directly some of the stuff that I was looking at in some of the stuff that I was looking at in Shadows, in the sense that this is this is film freedom, and it's not so much that the director was free to do whatever they want; it's that he allowed these actors, and then subsequently himself to literally do whatever he wanted and it's one of the most thrilling film experiences I've ever had um the movie is really like a poem and I don't mean that it's like poetic in the sense I guess it is poetic in a sense like a dreamlike poem but if you look at a poem I mean like an actual physical poem so if you look at a poem you'll have like the first line will be like two words and then the second line will be like 15 words and we'll have like punctuation in weird places dictating rhythm. Dic- you know, there'll be spaces dictating not ends of sentences, but ends of ends of rhythmic thought. Um, and this movie does all of those things, where it is not so much concerned with the standard procedure of how a movie like this is going to get made it's literally responding to the things he look at what i is literally responding to the things that he he is given in the, the film given by the actors in the movie so i mean he's dictating certain things so like he sets us up with like the credits of the movie where it's really bouncy you get that john adams kind of you know piano melody there and it just keeps shifting from these hellenistic statues him and john um, adams had or he worked together on... They did, but he picked a lot of... So even like in the Ryuichi Sakamoto like score that I talked about a second ago, it's very broken up. It's very jarring. It's, doesn't, it's not like a free-flowing... And all of this, the score in this is not a free-flowing beginning-to-the-end score, per se. It's, it's rhythmically interesting. It, is, um, it has stops and starts. It has moments of really great drama and then moments of... Um, really intense restraint and like it speaks directly to this movie where there's moments like um because john adams had already done like the music for i am love like yeah yeah, but he's this is uh, the first movie in the desire quote-unquote trilogy it's it's used it's used differently here because i am love is creating i am love is creating a a a a consistent aesthetic Mm. Where I think this is more discordant. It's broken up. Everything's everything's broken up. He's not so concerned about creating a fluidity. He's cre- concerned with creating freedom, and it's freedom in the filmmaking, which is related directly to oh, the man, freedom. I'm so excited of the, for this conversation we're about to have of the sexuality of of, and the, not just that sexuality though, but and I think that's why this movie is significant because it's the freedom of the emotions of these characters. Oh, absolutely. The ability of their the ability of these characters to be free. So it's, it's 
dictated you can but it's a film so you can see that stuff in like the disco scene where when they go dancing like the camera is at the wrong angle and the lights are all weird and you know everyone's kind of like you know elio kind of breaks apart and like does his own dance and it's just you know to the psychedelic first song um yeah love my way and it's you know elio playing the piano like the bach piece for oliver and I guess, you know, Timothy Chalamet maybe had said that, like, they did that all in one take, blah, blah, blah. But it's how... The thing I love about that, that Psychedella First song, by the way, there's an army on the dance floor is one of the lines in that song. Mm-hmm. There is an army. There's an there. army on the dance floor. Um, when Elio was playing Wink. that song for Oliver, he's playing it weird, and the acting is weird, and the acting is so awkward. But it's... And the first time I saw it, I was like, oh, my God, it's, like, so weird. But then when you think about it afterwards, you're just like, it just fits perfectly because they're both feeling each other out they both understand something about themselves that they are unwilling to like they're unwilling to articulate but elio's gonna articulate it in his piano and it goes to like you know it goes but that 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 is 100 percent then like expanded upon in like the infamous scene like not infamous but the famous scene but there's there's from so this is a pivotal film for me because there's lots of famous scenes. I'm also trying to say, like, this might be a pivotal film for me. And I hated this movie when I saw it, but now I'm realizing... Yeah, it's, it's a great movie. Important. Um, like, so the conversation in front of the World War One statue. Like, there's stuff Elio says to himself, which comes off as narration, like as voiceover. But somehow Oliver also hears it, even though it's louder than the conversation they were just having with yeah, each yeah. other. So does he actually hear the words he's saying, or does he hear, or does he understand something implicit in Elio's actions? And the beautiful thing about this movie is that it doesn't feel like it has to answer that. You know what I mean? It just is doing what it's doing. And the fact that that scene ends in a like, if we do the pivotal scene list, one of my pivotal scenes is going to be the scene of them riding down that road, like all the way to the point where you you pretty much can't see them anymore but he just keeps shooting it he just on the bike. Sh- he just fucking shoots on it the on bike? the bike yeah oh uh, when uh, when uh, with Mar- Ma- maurice ravel's on, on birdie sort of ocean is playing well after in yeah after they have the conversation in front of the thing and he has they have like a week leading into the first kiss speak about, yeah he just shoots it and it's a minute long and they're gone they're like uh, they're so far away, you basically can't see them, but he doesn't care. He just shoots it. It's what the thing deserves. Again, we talked about the Sufjan uh, Stevens like, music video that just kind of just happens in the middle of the movie. And then, the, again, if uh, this movie might have two pivotal scenes. The scene of Elio, after he fights with his father about having to wear that shirt. You know what I mean? He's like, he doesn't want to wear this shirt. And then he comes outside, and he does that kind of like smooth move between those people and he does the spin move and it's just there's a there's a freedom of expression here that is not in a lot of movies you know what i mean that's not available to 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 me or to anyone else who's like really interested in this stuff or who wants to pay attention to it if you give yourself to this movie you're going to find that it's moving you in non-typical emotional ways. And I'm not saying that, like, this movie made me, like, want to kiss Timothy Chalamet or Army Hammer or something like that. It made you want to kiss me. But this movie made me want to... It didn't make me want to do anything. It made me 
feel I felt like I was in touch with this kind of with this desire you know what I mean where the desire where you just have to do something you, this is it's the desire that comes with understanding finally who you are as a person you know what I mean and these two people have obviously denied aspects of themselves in the sense that like they're both um, uh, you know um, engaged in relationships with women um, but for a, for a summer for three days for a week whatever however long six it weeks. is they no but for six weeks they don't get but six they weeks don't get to access it for six weeks it's it's, for, they it's get a to, narrative over six weeks no, no, but, they get to then... ac- but they get to access these feelings true feelings for a week a few days whatever it is um and in those in that time they understand who they are better than they've ever understood themselves and it to the point where Michael Stuhlbarg has that wonderful speech at the end of the movie where he's saying, like, don't let this, don't kill the, the sadness you're experiencing, don't kill the pain, because you're going to want to access that pain later, and it's gonna, killing it means you're killing a, a piece of yourself. Um, which leads to one of the great final shots in cinema where Elio was literally processing that information in real time and the fire is physically but also metaphorically depicting like the 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 emotions that he must be feeling at that moment um and he's directly confronting those emotions and those emotions are are burning all over his face you can see them in his face not just in the tears but in in like the activity of the fire um and it's it's just it's it's an amazing movie. It's a thrilling movie. And there's like that there's that that moment when those Italians come and they're like all yelling at each other. And that one guy wants to talk about Bunuel like out of nowhere. He's like, let's talk about Bunuel. Um, and he's like says like cinema is a, is a filter, um, you know, for true emotion. And this this movie is that. It's not, you know, I guess it's. I think Betty Snell said it's like the it's like the best personification of like homosexuality in film it's like the first post-gay movie where like it's not about uh, you know them being victims or them having to be afraid of anything or them having to come out of it's not about being closeted because the parents know everyone seems at the end by the end of the movie everyone seems to know and everyone's like very accepting of it and he even perceives it as not being like ultra progressive because they don't it's not coming from a progressive political standpoint it's coming from an emotional standpoint and the his parents are responding to the emotions they're not responding to the politics and the girl Maurizia who he's supposed to be you know who's supposed to be his girl as when she forgives him is not responding to the politics of it she's responding to the emotions of it is that an Italian thing is that a European thing versus an American thing probably I can't imagine an American movie where like um, uh, a parent is like, I'm totally okay with everything you're doing in, you know, in, um, <clears throat> it's funny. Cause in 1985, that movie that came out last year with Michael Chiklis and Virginia Madsen, um, still haven't seen the one, man. It's, it's the opposite. You know what I mean? So like he has an under, like there's an understanding from himself, but his parents don't understand it yet. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, which is all that he really cares about. But in this movie, everyone it's just the nature of the family that they've established here. You know what I mean? Like the Jewish-American 
uh, Italian, so European, simultaneously Jewish American European family is just accepting of all. Uh, uh, it's accepting of these things, so you don't have to worry about it. Which means it allows the film goer, if you want, to just bask in like the beauty of the of the the images and of the emotions and of the score working with all of these things and like some of these piano pieces are like utterly beautiful um i can as i said if we did the, if we repick this up in 10 years i could see this pushed up like 20 spots i could just i could see it cuz as i go back to it i just find and every time I'm moved by the same things or moved by different things, um, I can see it just kind of rising in esteem with me. It's uh, it's a really it's it's just an incredible movie, and it capped off a 2017 that was already kind of like amazing. And because and I've mentioned this before, and I was talking about this movie. I didn't when I turned this movie on when I bought this movie just to catch up for Oscar seasons. I didn't expect to like it. I just expected to watch it. And understand it so I can say, like, Timothy I mean, Chalamet didn't deserve it over whoever won it in 2017. I forget who that was. Um, who did win it that year? I don't remember. Um, but that's what I expected. And then I got something completely different. Something totally different. Uh, I, I think it's Gary Oldman's year. Gary it? Oldman, yeah. For, for, for Dark Hour. <laughs> darkest Hour. Um Yes, I, so I didn't expect that. Are you ready? But it's not about memory. Go ahead. Are you ready? <laughs> Let's have the conversation. Let's have the conversation. I really hated this movie when I saw it. I remember actually. you saying that you did not like it, yes. I did not like it whatsoever. It was, I don't want to say a plotting experience, but it was an experience that did not reach the... The tones I was expecting. Well, I heard a podcast that described it as the gay guys riding bikes movie, which I wouldn't. I wouldn't agree. I with. wouldn't either. But like, I think a lot of people that like didn't want to like this movie were just kind of like, "Well, it's just this." They broke it down to its two most like, you know, present things, whatever. Right, I agree with you. I'm doing the. I agree with expression. your gesture. Um, to me, I didn't like this film because there was like a inconsistent harmony, like. There was a, a disharmony with it. It was a film that did not reach a consistent tonality. Sure. So this is the final film in Luca's Desire trilogy. Uh, I Am Love being the first film, a movie I really enjoy, 2009. Um, and A Bigger Splash, a movie I still haven't to give all disclosure to I haven't seen. Um, you've said you you've seen a bigger splash. I've seen them, yeah, yeah. To see a bigger splash, it's just it's just too much. It's like that middle class or that middle aged, you know, weird European bougie type. And we're gonna talk about this in a couple of weeks when we talk about an, another movie, like a, a new film. Where part of my resistance to it is the fact that like these people care about things that like don't really matter. So, but yeah, and they're uh, having existential with, crises with, with a bigger splash. You're right, they're having existential crises about things that like existential crises are coupled with things that don't matter. So, in, I saw, I rewatched Call Me By Your Name last night. And all of a sudden, I realized I really fucking love Call Me By Your Name. And I didn't get it because I really hated Call Me By Your Name two years ago. 
really, really, really hated Call Me By Your Name. Just because of, like, the fact that the tone didn't, didn't hit anything. And so I researched it. And I, like, read into the videos, read into, like, the, the narrative of it. And I, I stumbled upon some things that made me think about it. Uh-huh. And, and, like, this is why I'm going to lock down into the aspect of it being a, a movie about memory. Um, Luca has an interview with the Sydney Morning Herald right after the release of Call Me By Your Name where he talks about I Am Love and it says that is a movie about an older woman learning from a younger person. She is teaching me that I should be. It is about the transmission of knowledge. It's about my identity. Mm-hmm. I Am Love is a film in the present. Think about that sex scene in I Am Love. It's so fucking raw. Like that he's looking at her. Mm-hmm. He's staring at her from the kitchen. From a distance, and, and and it has this long, lingering, much better than broke back mountain landscape shots, lingering, and it's like what you you're taking in the landscape, but he's taking in her, mm-hmm. he's taking in the scope of her, you know, and it leads to that sex scene, which just has a lot of inner cuts, a lot of quick cuts, close in on Tilda Swinton's breast and whatnot, and that's but it's really raw. Like it, it's showing everything, but it's it's so fast moving, uh-huh. and it's so in the moment, and it beats at a certain pulse. Uh-huh. Like I wa- I rewatched I Am Love, which is on uh, Tubi. Tubi is that how you say it? Tubi right now for free. So um, you just spent four hours watching <laughs> I Am Love with all the commercials. Yeah, I, it wasn't. It was only like two and a half hours actually. With Tubi. Oh really? Yeah, oh, nice. wasn't too bad. Uh, we worked it, Tubi. It wasn't Crackle. Yeah, no, Tubi's actually much better than. Crackle. Because um, I couldn't understand after like my board game night last night on my birthday. Uh, ladies. <laughs> ladies. I'm 33. Um, how I liked calling my name so much. And, and I don't know if it's like an age thing or I don't know if it's a perspective thing. And I, so I watched it, but there's a rawness to it. There's an urgency to and that I am sex love. scene. And I am okay. love. The, it intercuts with with the bees landing on the flowers. Wow. He's, he's kissing uh-huh. her, her legs, and the leg is flawed. Like, the leg has, like, like pock marks, and, like, you know, Tillis one's a good-looking woman. But, like, the, the, the inconsistencies of everything, the, the, the rawness of it. And in the same Sydney Moral Herald review, Luca says, Call Me By Name, it, it is about the avenues that lead you through, and you're capacity to meet this driving force of desire no matter what its object is it can be a man with another man a woman with another woman a man with a woman is absolutely irrelevant call me by your name to me captures this moment of desire that is unknown this this desire uh-huh. of a moment of of remembrance that you 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 can no longer capture and I want to go back to that, that point I tried to bring up with you with the feudal devices where he's waiting for Oliver, where mm-hmm. Elio is waiting for Oliver. And you get the light bleeding through that shot. You get all the sprocket holes where, like, the light becomes sure. super blue. Yeah. And that was a complete accident in the film. Sure. And Luca leaves it in there because it gives it, as he said, an ephemeral quality. Because this movie carries through little side glance. Like oh, that. my eyes are just... Okay. It's 12.01. <laughs> I 
just six corner of my eye. Popping my eyes. Uh, through an ephoral quality. And I will argue that when I saw this movie, I saw it in the frame of reference in it is a movie set in 1983, and we are entering this movie in 1983. Yeah. And I hated it when I saw it then. In that scope of view. Uh-huh. I do not like Call Me By Your Name if I am a 1983 person walking into 1983 and walking into Northern Italy and seeing this movie. Mm-hmm. You know, it is... Not, not necessarily blasé. It's just kind of like a... Well, so, I mean, so it sounds like you need the framework of memory to appreciate this movie. But I think that is the purpose of it. Because I think everything is framed that way. I think when you get a cinematographer who has a history no, I understand of what you're framing saying. it. I understand what you're saying. Framing it with an ephemeral dreamlike quality. But he's... This movie is a dream. And I... Like, it's great that you see it has like in the modern time and it's great that's still a pivotal film but like is this movie modern maybe this is one of the the movies we could talk about being a pivotal film in the sense of the pivotal films the films that rise above like the impact it has on me and you what do you mean like maybe it has an impact on film in general like maybe it has a true sense of capturing um maybe it has a true sense of being a pivotal film to film in general in the sense that it means many things to many people like it's a classic all-time movie like maybe yeah maybe that's the thing i mean i don't i think it will be i think if it came out in 1983 it would be considered more so i mean listen look but that, it, that, things that, just tend to disappear in this day that and age maurice but. ravel like i was trying to bring up that like umbrock de sur lochon score like when they had that first kiss like those there's like a, like a heat to it. There's a heat to that score. But here's what I would that, say. And everything, everything about this movie has laid, like a certain sort of layeredness to I it. I get, I understand. Like yeah. The visual aspect to it tries to capture the heat, ca- tries to capture like the sense of scope, tries to capture the sense of the framing of, of the visuals, but it doesn't do it. But then when you, 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 you encapsulate the score, you encapsulate the performances, you, you, you cover... You know, that perfectly timed feudal devices are visions of Gideon, even though me and you are not Chief John Stevens guys. Maybe me a little more so than you. But, like, the perfect timing of the choices of where music hits yeah, I and just, where the visual hits yeah. to hit what you want the audience I to would feel. Under, I understand what you're saying, like, generally. But I think if from like a typical movie that is and maybe this isn't a typical movie you know but they're the framing devices for a movie of nostalgia for a movie of remembrance um but there's a deliberate there's not there. it's so no it is so deliberate but the move the okay, things you're, so the, the, the very things first the things you're describing are not framing devices for memory okay there's framing devices for Freedom of film. They're framing devices for establishing a, 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 like a, an aesthetic for the film. Okay. You know what I mean? So, so they're not so framing we could, devices for we like. We could argue this. We could argue this. Oliver, the very first time, remember- the very first time Elio sees Oliver, he's wearing that blue button down. Right. All of uh, Elio's wearing that kind of just like what, just like that kind of like regular kind of like polio shirt, yeah, yeah. like polo polio. Jesus Christ. That regular polo shirt. You Maybe know? in northern Italy they didn't have the vaccination. <laughs> um, 
in the very last scene between Elio and Oliver, Elio is wearing that polo shirt. Because Oliver gives it to him. But they don't talk about that. They do. He it, says, can I have your shirt? He actually says, can I have your But it's no, no, such he a throwaway line. Uh-huh, it is a throwaway line. He says, it's after they've had sex, he's like, can I have, this is the shirt. But it frames it. It no, but, frames everything. But, it captures everything but, in so this that's the thing. bowl. So this is what I'm saying, is that you are, pers- and I'm not saying that you're wrong as much as I'm saying that you're wrong. And that he is, he actually says, there ha- so just after they have sex, he throws a shirt. It's not a throwaway line because they have a couple of lines about it. He well, not even a throwaway line, but I mean, like, said, it's, it's like, something that a modern film, like, a, a film audience that's not, like, 100% in the shit is going to catch. But they don't have to be in the shit, because it's literally, like, four lines about this shirt. And he throws it on the ground, and the shot lingers on the shirt, and he's like, you were wearing, and the, the, the shot stays on the shirt when he says, you were wearing that shirt when, you know, your first day here, when you leave, can I have it? And then, when Oliver wakes up the next day, there are shirts on the hanger with a note on it. And he, like, you know, reads the note out loud, and then he puts the shirt on. But then, and you, then... Get, you get, like, 20 minutes between that and, like, the final scene where, you know, you get, you get a span of time between that and where Oliver's leaving. When Oliver's leaving where? Like, when Oliver's on the train. Yeah, but it's, but it's the same shirt that he just explained how he got the shirt. Like, we know how he got the shirt. Because they made a big deal of telling us how he got the shirt. Okay. It's a call me, it's a, it, it refers to the call me by your name thing. Like, you know, in the sense that he's going to take on aspects of Oliver forever. And like the shirt is just like a physical remembrance of, but it's in current time. He says to remember him by like in that moment. It's not like a shirt that he's wearing when he's 40. He's still got this, you know, Oliver shirt. That he's just he wears to bed every night. That he hasn't wa- that he hasn't washed in forty years and has weird brown green but stains I mean, on it. But I mean, what this movie does is frames things so perfectly. Well, it frames what... a beginning and end, and a movie that is so deliberate. Looking at Luco's so, past, like uh, looking at like looking at the past films and the Desire trilogy, looking at what he does before, and then looking at Suspiria, which is a movie that one hundred percent. I think you have to though, because no, no, I think you, this is you, such a deliberate director no, and writer. The thing you don't have to. You only have to look as far as the one, and this is where this is perhaps this is a disagreement generally on on perceiving art in general. And I tend to believe that you can perceive these things in and of themselves. This is not a movie. Which is fair. Yeah. This is not a movie about these two people. This is a movie about desire. Yeah, so, absolutely. But it's not a movie. He in, says that himself. But it's not a movie in reference to the desire that's felt in like I am loving a bigger splash or like even Suspiria, desire to dance, um, and to just mangle people while you dance. Um, it it's is exploding blood. When they're dredging, when they're looking at those pictures of like the Hellenist, Hellenist, Hellenist. Hellenistic statues. My mouth is too dry to get this out. Hellenistic statues. Ladies and gentlemen, we didn't have enough beer for this episode. Um, we, which is funny because we had a lot of beer. beer. Um, it is, you know, he's talking about like fifth century stuff. You know what I mean? And he's talking about the nature of desire contained within those statues. You know what I mean? He's like, oh, none of them are straight. They're all curved. They're all so sensuous. It's not desire between these two people. It's the nature of desire from the beginning of time to now. 
Mm. And it takes a stop, interestingly, 30 years ago when Michael Stuhlbarg tells Elio about the time that he felt something similar and he didn't do anything about it. Where he used to have a friend that was almost as close as he and Oliver were, but he never took that chance. And the things that he's perceiving in himself, which I think in the end are good things, which I think are, are positive things, that he's, you know... There are things he could have done, but he did other things instead, and he's he loves the other things, and the other things fill him up in similar ways to the things that he didn't do. Um, but it's it's if we're talking about memory, it's like I think the memory of desire, and it's almost like a Sandman thing, you know what I mean? Like Neil Gaiman's Sandman, where like desire, like androgynous desire, comes out and just kind of like touches certain aspects of things like over time you know what i mean it's and she's come out and she's touched these two people and they desire each other in ways that they don't have to describe politically or but it's even there. historically they're just they just for us for a week in a summer or for six weeks in a summer whatever you want to feel they were they desired each other and Isn't that there's something they, too yeah when that train is departing, uh -huh. you know, where, where Oliver kind of extends the, the hand really mm -hmm. quickly. He can't say anything to him. Isn't there something too like how this is the one time where images besides like the feudal devices scene where like he allows, you know, the, the light to kind of like intersperse on the film quality uh -huh. where like kind of things disperse in the distance. Things kind of like melt out in the distance. No, because there's and the, then and because then, there's like, the bike scene. Like he's always melting things. But through the light, whole light's movie. so concentrated. Like the image no, is I, so concentrated on on the focus. But I think, and then you have the two focuses kind of divided by that point, and then you have a central. But here's the thing: aspect so, of that kind of fading out. Listening to the kind of making of thing, uh, documentary that's on the DVD. It's not a documentary. It's just kind of a conversation with Luca Guadagnino and some of the actors. When he talks about working with like the one, the single lens. And that he was accepting of whatever that lens was going to give him. So there's a couple of scenes in the movie where the perspective changes literally in the middle of like of the action, and it's for a second out of focus, and then it's back in focus because the, you know which happens the a lot in this movie. The cinematographer has to adjust the focus because he's only got one lens, and they're not changing it. So it's these long takes, and he has he's to. He's like, I had, a, I had a much more better budget in Arabian Nights. Right, yeah, he had to. Um, you know, he didn't have to adjust the focus in Arabian Nights. He just had to stop action and then put another lens on. Um, I think that all speaks to the... It speaks to the freedom that these two feel for a summer. You know what I mean? Where Oliver is away from the stereotypes and the perceptions and the expectations of somebody like him. You know what I mean? Like... When I watch this movie, I think a lot of the... Of like uh, some of the Philip Roth characters like... Um, the Swede and American pastoral where they they're these these Jewish men who in a way look a lot like goys. They're blonde, um, they have blue eyes, um, they're tall, they're thick, and they are are athletic, you know what I mean? They're not like the typical, stereotypical what we think of as like a Jewish man or Jewish boy or whatever it is. Yeah. You know what I mean? They're not weak they're not begging for their mothers. They're existent in and of themselves. And I think... I think what he's saying with leaving these things in is not so much that it's Elio thinking back or Elio thinking back about 
like how these things felt to him. Because I think if he was thinking back, he would have erased the things that, like when you know, when after the peach scene, after he like masturbates with that peach, and he's like, oh, you know, you're hurting me. Why are you doing this? Please don't do this. I think he erases those things if it's if it's like uh, well, if he's trying to think of, if he's trying to think of these things in like the most uh, um the best terms possible he erases those moments of of real pain and but that's even a moment of extraction though because like he says because like oliver says let go when he's talking about the peach and then elio just fucking starts weeping right and there's an abstraction to what oliver's staying versus what elio and but right before that he also says you're hurting me and he tries to get him to not eat the peach so he elio's an emotional wreck for like but by saying let go it's saying a lot sure 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 but you but if we read too much into the let go in terms of like a nostalgia or from a memory standpoint we're disregarding like the other four scenes ahead of that where elio couldn't write the note right you know what i mean he spends a bunch of time writing a letter that he throws a lot of copies away and ends up just sending like putting a copy under the door um but i think this is i mean we don't have to do this anymore if you don't want to um this is a this is an interesting movie it's way more interesting than i think the culture gives it credit for yeah it's no. it's not just an interesting gay movie it's not speaking specifically it's not a gay to, movie. i mean like not right. even to like like shit on like anything but it's just like it is more. It is. It is a movie that is framed underneath the the uh, gay culture. I mean, in a sense of gay culture, but in a sense of like like hetero like I think anti heteronormative culture that is actually saying a lot more about just culture in general. Well, that's the thing. So I think the heteronormative culture would say this is a gay movie, and I think that because they're fucking morons. In reality, it's a movie about how we all feel about everything. Which is, which is what he's trying to say. Like he said in that interview, it was just like, this is a movie about how you feel, which is important to say. I mean, call, I'm, as a straight man, like, call me by your name punches me in the gut because I've had those kind of feelings about women. Mm-hmm. Sure. You no, know, because that's how you fucking feel about how you feel about a person. Because, mm-hmm. spoilers. Especially the first, like, the first time, that first, for the the person you meet, like, and you spend six weeks with them, like, those first six weeks are kind of crazy if you've decided that, like, this is my person. Yeah, I'm intoxicated weird. by this person. Because it's almost like who the gender or, sex, or the sex of the person doesn't fucking matter. That's so weird. Yeah. It's like if a guy feels that way about a guy, it doesn't matter. Or a guy feels that way about a girl, it doesn't matter. Mm. Or a girl feels that way with a girl, it doesn't matter. It's weird. Yeah. It's almost like it just shouldn't be a fucking issue. Is it why I don't know why it's an issue, huh? Is it an issue? Oh, not for me and you, <laughs> but for a bunch of podunk nonsense hey, dumb fucks. Hey, are we saying people in Arkansas are podunks? Whatever makes them uncomfortable. I mean, I'm sure they probably live by being called podunk. But I'm also sure a lot of those people have seen this movie like a thousand times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because Army Hammer puts just his, make them angry because Army Hammer puts his face in not the porn like the softcore Cinemax porn spot but in like the right spot where a penis goes <laughs> so I'm sure the Arkansas I'm sure all the Alabama men who voted against abortion have seen this movie lots of times which is fine because you, know, yeah. you know what accept it yeah they and should accept it. it and stop live bothering everyone else live your truth if you watched it and you saw Army Hammer Giving a blowjob to another man, and that made you feel great. You know what? That's awesome. Like live that. Yeah, Army Hammer. 
as a straight man, that's a that's a good looking guy. Real quick, Army Hammer in this movie, great, fucking phenomenal. Timothy Chalamet, great. Once in a lifetime thing, he's never gonna he's never gonna duplicate this. Twenty. Michael, but I think he's I think Michael Storberg not as amazing as people said he was amazing. I think but. he's he's supports the ideals and the emotions of this movie really well. But this movie continues our renaissance of Army Hammer, though. Like, like we continued this the next year with uh, Sorry to Bother You. Sorry, yeah, he was good in Sorry to Bother You. Like, he, Army Hammer is fucking... He's not Dan Stevens, but he's good. He's, <laughs> he's good. He's a, he's a middle-class Dan Stevens. Yeah, which is not a bad thing to be. Um... Yeah. If you have your opinion of what a middle-class Dan Stevens could be, you can uh, tweet us at twitter.com slash filmpivotal. Uh, or you can send us an email at pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail.com, uh, or you can go to pivotalfilm.com and send us some messages there, or look at uh, a list of the movies uh, on our lists, or a list of the beers that we drank, or you can subscribe to us on Or you can talk wherever. about the Hyde Amendment. Or you can talk, if you want to talk about the Hyde Amendment do that too um there's only one right opinion and if you have that opinion congratulations if you have their opinion you're joe biden you're joe biden (laughs) uh but until then uh watch a movie drink some beers enough beers and uh we'll talk to you next week